A strong east wind carried the flames of a fire in the king's kitchen to the rest of the city. The path of the flame, passing through the most combustible sections of town, making the heat so strong that nobody could put it out. And at the end of five days, every trace of the terrible plague lay scorched in the glowing embers of the desolate city. The same fire that robbed 200,000 people of house and home gave 200,000 people and their ancestors a chance to live again. What appeared to be London's greatest tragedy turned out to be their greatest savior. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Fire broke out in the city of London. The source of the fire was the king's own kitchen, oddly enough, on Pudding Lane. It could not have been a worst place for the fire to start. Pudding Lane was a narrow street lined with wooden homes, each of which had thatched roofs, and bakeries. One street over was the London Bridge, which also was lined with houses made of plaster and wood. And as if that wasn't bad enough, there was an unusually strong east wind that morning that pushed the fire toward Tim's Street and Fish Street Hill. These streets contained the large storerooms filled with combustible materials like oil and pitch and tar. And this meant that the fire became so intense that nobody could get close enough to fight the flames. To make matters worse, London had no central fire station. In their great wisdom, the London Council leadership had earlier suggested that local residents should handle any fire outbreaks with leather buckets of water. And in really serious cases, they were supposed to burn wood as a means of creating a fire break. And so they assessed the situation, and they determined that the fire would probably burn itself out. It did, five days later. 13,000 houses, 87 churches, including St. Paul's Cathedral, and all the main buildings of London were destroyed. 200,000 people were left with nothing. Amazingly, only five deaths were reported. Today, in the city of London, there's a monument that stands commemorating the Great Fire of London. And you may wonder why anybody would want to commemorate the Great Fire, which was such a tragic moment. Well, it's because, as Paul Harvey would say, you need to hear the rest of the story. On that same cool September morning, Londoners were experiencing the worst case of plague in their country's history. No one knew what caused the terrible disease that was ruining whole families and cities in a matter of weeks. The disease was actually carried on the back of fleas that lived on the skin of black rats that far outnumbered the people of London. But they didn't know that. 
So to stop the dreaded disease, these same geniuses of ingenuity that said, who needs a fire station, decided to slaughter 40,000 dogs and 80,000 cats. I can't think of a better way to make the rat problem worse. And from May of 1665 to September of 1666, 1,000 Londoners were dying every week. With no apparent way to stop the disease, the people, both sick and healthy, simply sat in their homes and waited to die. Until a strong east wind carried the flames of a fire in the king's kitchen to the rest of the city. The path of the flame, passing through the most combustible sections of town, making the heat so strong that nobody could put it out. And at the end of five days, every trace of the terrible plague lay scorched in the glowing embers of the desolate city. The same fire that robbed 200,000 people of house and home gave 200,000 people and their ancestors a chance to live again. What appeared to be London's greatest tragedy turned out to be their greatest savior. You know where I'm going with this. Who would have thought that Christianity would revolve around a cross? I know that we're used to reading Isaiah 53 as a suffering servant and all of that, but that's not how people were reading it in terms of a Messiah figure until Christianity helped us reframe how to see it. The truth is, whether you were Jew or Gentile, you had all kinds of views about resurrection and immortality, but everybody agreed on this. Nobody's coming from heaven to die. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the cross is a stumbling block to Gentiles, to, to, to some, and foolishness to others. Stumbling block. Foolish. In 1856, archaeologists unearthed what perhaps is the earliest depiction of the crucifixion of Christ painted anywhere. It was etched into plaster in 200 AD. And there's a man pictured extending his arms toward a cross. And on the cross hangs a human body with the head of a donkey. And the statement in Greek says, Alexamenos worships his God. Think about that. The earliest anti-Christian symbol of a crucified man with a donkey's head. It's why Paul says the cross is foolishness. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the humility of Jesus and says he even, the word is even, went to the death on a cross. Times have changed. Now we wear crosses with jewels all around them, gold studded tattoos and necklaces on church displays, at homes and on the walls, on bumper stickers, t-shirts and pillows. But you realize that it was the form of cruel, terrible, torturous death. In 1200 AD, one of the oldest works in old English literature talks about the cross and says, divine creatures cradle it, each and every one. Beauteous promise of things to become, no longer some gallows for the guilty, 
gemstones, gladsome bandaged its scars. It's a great line. We paint over what first century eyes would have seen. We could talk about the pain of the cross. Go watch the Passion of the Christ. You'll see the pain of the cross. But the gospel writers hardly mention the pain. Have you noticed that? They seem to think there's something even stronger and stranger to focus on. And that is the shame of the cross. You ever played truth or dare? <laughs> we will do a lot of things to avoid shame, uh, to avoid pain. But we'll go through a lot of pain to avoid shame. Shame is the loss of dignity. In Deuteronomy 25, Deuteronomy says when you are scourging someone, a fellow Israelite, you can scourge him 40 times, but no more. And he gives a reason. Lest he loses his dignity in your eyes. Shame is the worst. And what do we find when we think about the cross? The closest images I can imagine are the images that come from the Holocaust. Barely walking skin and bones, human beings treated like cattle, forced into labor and debasement, stripped of all their dignity before being slaughtered. Now we're getting an image of what that must have been like. So why in the world did God choose a cross? Our buddy Anselm that I mentioned this morning gives us a quick and easy answer. Because there was no other way. I'll tell you why I like that. Here's how he thought that out. If there was any other way for God to do it than the way he did it, he would have done it. After all, Jesus, his son, begs him to. He says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Every good father wants to give good gifts to his children. If there was some other way, surely he would have done it. So it had to be this way. Well, how exactly does he work all that out? The way he works it out is he, I want to make sure I don't miss this page. The way he works it out is he says that the death of Jesus fits the description of what must be true if, in fact, God is going to do all the things the Bible says the cross will do. The death of Jesus has to be costly because of the debt we owe. It has to represent the depths of our depravity by its gruesomeness and shame. It has to fit the crime for a weak and ungodly sinner. It has to be public because of the cosmic offense to God. In his death, he has to identify with us. It has to tell this cosmic story. And finally, to fit the character of God, it has to be a beautiful story, an upside-down story, like the upside-down kingdom. And the cross does all of that. And we'll talk about that in eight minutes. Number one, the cross says that suffering is real and God went through it. There are, in fact, religions in the world that will tell you that pain is a figment of your imagination. David Hume famously said, the problem of evil, that's the biggest problem for Christianity. I've got news for him and for everybody else. The problem of evil is a problem for everybody. When non-Christians say, give me an explanation for evil, Christians say, I can tell you a story. What's yours? Evil, if it's real, is a problem 
for everybody. And it seems to me that if you really think there's something wrong in the world, if you think the Holocaust was bad, if you think the Rwandan massacre was horrible, you cry out for justice and an explanation, and Christians at least have a story. But if, in fact, for whatever reasons, God believes that evil and pain and suffering must be for a while in some way, he enters into it with us, and he shows us that he believes that evil and pain and suffering is real. He doesn't deflect any attention away from the consequences of evil. Christians claim our God felt the blows firsthand. Number two, the cross says that God canceled my debt, and the debt was huge. Cancel's the wrong word. He paid for it. During the uh, Kosovo War, a journalist filed a report about ethnic deportees in Macedonia. And they talked about these people who had lost everything, their irreplaceable life's work. And one of the reporters said, can such a deep hurt ever heal? And one newspaper editor from Albania said, let me tell you a story I heard when I was a kid. There was a naughty boy whose father would hammer a nail into a piece of wood every time his son did something wrong. One day, the boy asked why, and when it was explained, the boy decided he would behave better. Each time he did something good, his father would remove a nail from the board. Eventually, all the nails came out. He let a few seconds pass, allowing suspense to precede the story's moral. Yes, the nails were gone, but the holes remained. The holes remained. The evil that happens in the world is real and it leaves scars. We needed every nail removed, and God did that in forgiving us. But the effects of our evil in the world continue, and the debt's enormous. So we stand forgiven. But what about the effects of our sin upon the world and upon each other? We need the holes filled as well. So God talks about reconciliation, which we'll get to in a second. God forgave my sins, and forgiveness involves costly suffering. Sometimes people will say, since he's God and he can do anything he wants, why doesn't he just skip the cross and forgive us? Have you ever thought about that? Why go through the cross? God, you're God. Just say, I forgive you. I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this. Real forgiveness involves costly suffering. Suppose somebody backs their car into your garage. You can sue him or he can overlook it. But no matter what you do, there's a cost that needs to be incurred. Somebody has to own it. The damage is done. Not just money. Somebody mistreats you. Somebody abuses you. They can rob you of your dignity and purpose. And the worse your situation, the more likely you're going to feel animosity. Not just towards them, but all the people like them. But revenge will not bring you the satisfaction you think it will. The desire for revenge is ill will, not goodwill. And you aren't seeking their change, only their pain. And when the goal is somebody else's hurt, hurt remains the story. But there's a better answer. It's called forgiveness. And in forgiveness, the debt is still there, but you absorb the debt. You take the cost completely on yourself. 
Is that painful? Yes, it feels like death. But it's a death that can lead to resurrection. And the perpetrator can see and feel the forgiveness in such a way that it can even bring them to repentance. Do you see why the question, why don't he just forgive us, makes no sense. Nobody just forgives when the problem is heinous and serious. By choosing to forgive us rather than punish us, God chose to absorb the debt by dying on the cross. God announces to the world in the cross that he's reconciling the cosmos. I told you forgiveness is costly. I told you even with forgiveness, the holes remain, the effects of sin on us and on the world. So God says, I've got something else. I'm not just removing what's bad. I'm ushering in new creation where the holes get filled. The rifts are healed. And God reconciles the world. Listen to the language of Ephesians and Colossians. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by putting to death their hostility. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. On the cross, Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth, announcing that the rift between the two would be closed. He hung his arms in both directions, announcing forgiveness past and future and healing as far as the curse is found. And he said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And now, as a sign of what we'll see fully in the future, the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. As the righteous one who died for the unrighteous, the heavenly hung to death with the earthly. And if we can all die together, surely we can all live together. And that leads to the last point, that in fact, the cross isn't just a nice image from the past. It is our new way of life. It describes how we think. It describes how we live. I appreciate so much your attention in both of these sermons this morning and tonight. There's so much more about the cross we could talk about. But what I want you to know is that God knew what he was doing. The conclusion to the London fire story is ironic, don't you think? With no means to trace the source of the plague and everything they try to do to fix it made it worse. The only chance for salvation had to come from the outside. But it came with a price. It demanded everything they had, and that's the irony. They couldn't go on living with their plague-infested parts of their lives. You had to give up everything to survive. You needed the fire to get rid of the problem so you could start over again, which was the solution. How could Paul boast in the cross? How can we sing in the cross be my glory ever? Because the cross, the cross takes everything bad about me out of the way, removes the nails and fills the holes and gives me hope and a future. If I'm willing to lay down everything about me, this is why we take up our cross daily and follow him. Thank you.
Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.